Hello and welcome to Talking Intellectual History. I'm Dr Paul Sagar and I teach political theory at King's College London. Today I'm joined by Dr Emma McKinnon, who is University Lecturer in History at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Emmanuel College. Hi Emma. Hi Paul, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining me. So we're going to talk today about the idea of rights declarations and in particular your work on the history of rights declarations. And I often think of the kind of work you do is really hardcore intellectual history, because whereas what I tend to do is focus on like one text and really think about it very hard and sort of look at some of the surrounding intellectual context and a lot of the subsequent scholarship, your kind of work is very ambitious in that you don't just look at texts, uh, you look at arguments, you look at archives, you look at the way these things have actually been interpreted in real history and real practice and, and as we'll see I think today are reinterpreted um, so I'm, uh, I'm very much in awe of the kind of work that you do because I think it's very difficult um, but one thing we might begin with is by thinking about what is a rights declaration. I think many people would be familiar with the idea of you know, the America, American Declaration of Independence, uh, asserting that human beings are, uh, hold these rights uh, equally and we hold these, uh, these rights to be self-evidently held equally, or, or a little bit later, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, um, as part of the revolutionary movement declaring, you know, that, 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 well, maybe human beings, but certainly French men um, are entitled to certain things simply for being human beings. And of course, later, um, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights in the wake of the Second World War, which in some ways is still incredibly influential in our own politics today. And I think many people would think of these as all kind of one genre of declaration uh, and indeed a progressive genre a history of progress of from the 18th century to the present uh, 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 these kinds of things coming into being and enacting a further and further kinds of rights and sort of developing on from each other in a historical story of progress but not just your work but lots of intellectual history in this area shows that things aren't so simple and um, so why aren't aren't things as simple as people might believe here <laughs> thanks paul so the um Declarations are, are in some ways a coherent, apparently coherent genre, uh, but also pretty curious documents in themselves. So there's um, a fair amount of literature on this in political theory and thinking about the way that a rights declaration is a sort of performative act, that it, um, that it, it doesn't just state a claim, um, a sort of factual claim about the existence of rights, but that it um, performs the power to, to claim those rights um, and that in doing so, it sort of enacts the rights themselves. Um, so, the, but there's a there's a sort of funny tension in that, and that there, it's, as the if you think of the American Declaration, um, for example, here that there's both both a sort of performance of sovereignty, a performance of of rights in the assertion of them, but also a claim to some kind of prior authority, an assertion at the same time that rights are natural, that they don't need to be performed, but that they're they're pre-existing, um, and that's. That's, I think, part of what makes the, makes the documents of particular interest to, to political theorists. Um, and what, what already sort of gives us a clue that there's a kind of temporal logic built into them, that there's both a sort of claim of something prior and the performance of something in the present as a way of, of bringing it forward or calling it forward. Um, so a lot, of, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the people who look at declarations then sort of see them as a coherent category that brings these sort of theoretical tensions or theoretical challenges um, and will sort of trace a history of a series of declarations. Um, part of what I'm interested in though is how, how declarations as a genre um, enable a sort of 
contest over the over the meaning of right over their own history right so that the, if there's a if there's a sort of narrative of a prior natural right and then the contemporary performance repeated declarations also begin to call on the power of the genre of the declaration itself right so this was very done very self-consciously in the 1948 universal declaration um, and that the document in in presenting the document its authors often described it as calling forward um, legacies from the French and American declarations before it um, and sort of reforging that those earlier enlightenment moments for a post-war 20th century moment um, so there's a there's a sort of third source of authority in the history of the genre itself um, part of what's interesting then though is that if we think about genre not just as a set of qualities that need to be repeated so if we think of declaration as having certain characteristics that we'd see in 1776 and 1789 and 1948 just repeated and we know something's a rights declaration if it's doing those things ticking certain boxes um, if we approach the genre as a self-conscious category in which later instances of a genre are engaged with what it means to participate in that genre um, we can start to see i think how um, how the sort of politics of rights gets contested through different efforts to remake what it means to declare those rights. Um, so how, in this sense, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 doesn't just repeat aspects of what came before, but carries forward certain legacies, calls down certain inheritances, while also refusing others. So part of what I'm interested then more broadly about, about the politics of human rights here is that it's... Um, is thinking about rights not just as something things that are enumerated or sort of listed out um, or strictly as something that are performed and claimed but as something where the sort of historical the history of the category itself becomes part of the content too um, and that and that um, by thinking about about sort of genres of declaration genres of rights and the way that different genres um, are used to um, to sort of organize a history uh, we can see the sort of the way that political contests about rights carry out, not just in terms of what counts as a right or who gets to claim it, but of what the history of, of rights claiming is. Um, right. That's really helpful. And that takes us, I think, to two issues that your work in particular has focused on. And that's one, then, what it means to disavow part of a genre while still being in that genre. And probably as a function of that, the thing you've just mentioned, um, what's going to count as a right? And as you show in some of your work, there's a real tension in the history of human rights declarations between viewing rights as primarily borne by individuals and um, being owed specifically to individuals directly versus rights as parts of groups and group claims and the ability to assert the, the independence of in particular nations. And so how is it that these, these distinct and sometimes in our history competing conceptions of rights have also factored into this idea of disavowing the genre of the declaration? Thanks. So there's a, yeah, there's a fairly common assumption, I think, that group and individual rights are strictly philosophically separate categories and that there's something straightforward about that, um, which is a surprising claim to see, see coming even from historians, given that it, it seems like an obviously uh, historically constructed conceptual distinction. Um, so part of what I'm interested in is the way that the relationship between individuals, nations, and the international gets reconfigured in and through notions of rights and of what it means to declare them. Um, so there's a pretty standard story, right, that the, that the 18th century rights declarations are um, not, 
they appear to be rights declarations in one sense, but they're also declaring national independence. So they're sort of doing two things at once. They're both setting out an enumerated list of individual rights, and in doing so, they're staking a, a claim for national sovereignty um, for France or for the U.S. specifically um, in the in the two cases I'm focused on here. Um, that later declarations of rights can appear discontinuous from that. So the Universal Declaration um, of Human Rights specifically can look like a declaration of, of sort of international rights. If you read it closely, I think you see that it's um, premised on nations as the primary providers of those rights, but there's a sort of um, containerization of, of sort of individual rights, nations that provide those at an international level that can sort of step in and provide checks and that's premised on um, where recognition among nations is premised on the equal respect for rights. Um, that I think is the main vision of the Universal Declaration. Um, but there's a, the historiography then would it be, begins to separate out notions of individual rights um, as objects of international concern or as something that's provided by nations as articulated in the Universal Declaration from claims that are primarily about state sovereignty. And the treatment of those as separate traditions um, gets read backwards, I think, inappropriately. Whereas part of what I, what I argue in my work is that the, the 18th century declarations are engaged with a central question of how those relate to each other um, and have a vision of, um, of, of individual and group rights as, as codependent um, and not as entirely separate, obviously separable categories, but in a necessarily problematic relationship with each other. Um, and that in the 20th century, they're still in a problematic relationship with each other, but the assertion that they're sort of just cleaved from each other um, overlooks some of the political work that's involved in that apparently straightforward philosophical claim. Um, so that you also asked about disavowal as part of this. Um, so, so part of what I think is going on with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is that it's, um, that it's while it's carrying forward aspects of those earlier declarations and claiming to be directly um, inheriting them. And I should say this is the sort of division that's given by two of its primary authors who I'm tracking here. This is Eleanor Roosevelt and Rene Cassin. Um, that, that, that's, that that's not a sort of straightforward repetition of what came before, but involves writing out certain inheritances too. Um, and that in, in claiming that those inheritances are not um, relevant, um, asserting that they're sort of of a separate genre altogether, um, that did particular political work in its moment um, in allowing, I mean, particularly for the U.S. and for France, in disclaiming uh, rights claims from, in the U.S. case, from African-American activists um, as irrelevant to the problem of human rights, um, and in France's case, from um, colonial subjects, um, in claiming sort of rights of self-determination as relevant to the question of human rights. Because I think those, part of what's interesting is in this moment, a lot of those activists are drawing on 1776 and 1789 as well and claiming to be inheriting those declarations um, in order to make arguments for independence or for racial justice. Um, and in dismissing those arguments, um, Cassin and Roosevelt in particular, make a claim that, that they're just not part of the history of human rights and that the history of rights and the the vision of what it means to declare rights um, leaves no space for rights to petition or appearance at the UN by minorities, that it doesn't leave, leave space for a claim to a right to rebellion, um, and that there, there, that there are sort of aspects of those earlier declarations that are um, 
that are sort of written out of of the 1948 moment um, by the French and French and American powers. Um, Great. And that there's a politics to that. Perhaps we could actually go into a bit more detail on precisely that, because I think it would come as a surprise to many people who aren't specialists in the history of this to find out that the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 is in fact incredibly controversial um, at the time and, and, and subsequently in, in historical scholarship. Um, and, it, and I think it relates to what you've just said, right, that um, the UN Declaration took a position on what was going to count as the locus of where rights get recognized and how they get recognized. And it was going to be the nation state. Um, and so in particular, it wasn't going to be that you could appeal directly to citizens. Um, so on the one hand, African-Americans couldn't claim against the American state a set of human rights that the American state was failing to uphold and then go above them to the UN. And likewise, French colonial subjects would have to go via the French state in order to um, assert these rights. But one thing that your, your own research has highlighted is that this was actually a very brief window of time in which this was politically feasible to make it work this way. So what was going on there? What was the wider colonial and, and, and political context that made the UN Declaration come out in this particular way at that point? Right. So the, the UN Declaration is, um, is sort of known for not including a right to self-determination. Um, and that's often read as a, promise, prob, a sort of a product of its direct historical context. Um, so that uh, in the immediate, it's when the drafting begins, there, um, there's a sort of, there's a wider committee, a smaller subcommittee. It's, and there's sort of, there are problems in how you, in how you approach a historical document like this in the first place, that it's, it has a lot of authors and a lot of the claims to authorship um, have, are sort of both, both have a politics to them. Um, and sort of as well as the sort of personal rivalries that went into it. Um, so there's a, while I, I focus um, in my piece in political theory on the role of, of Eleanor Roosevelt and Rene Cassin, who are both uh, members of a sort of nu so-called nuclear subcommittee that does some of the initial drafting. John Humphrey from Canada is in that as well. Um, there are good arguments that there's, there's strong um, influences from other delegations um, on the document itself. Um, so in asserting the sort of the, the primacy of Roosevelt and Kassan, I'm not trying to sort of echo a hagiography of them as the, the sort of forefathers or foremothers of this document, um, but that it's, um, I, at the same time, I don't, I think it's, I think it would be silly to claim that the US and France weren't powerful in this moment, the US in particular. Um, so so when the, the drafting of the document begins, um, there's, already been an open question about in the writing of the UN Charter in San Francisco about the sort of the place of, um, of, of the sort of representation of colonial peoples is the language it's often used at the time. Um, and, and within that also, but by um, questions about the sort of allegiance between demands for, by African-Americans in the US and anti-colonial struggles internationally. Um, and I think at this point, we often think about human rights and civil rights as sort of separate categories. But at this moment, they're, they're very merged together. I can talk more about that later. Yeah, so, so let, let's definitely come back to, to that question. But one thing I thought before we get uh, a little deeper into um, that issue, you said something intriguing then, which I'd like to hear a little more about. You said, you know, there are historical problems in using these documents. Um, and perhaps, you know, 
we could we could reflect a little bit more on that because in some ways these these documents are philosophical texts to a certain extent yeah. they're making claims about the basis of rights um, and who gets to hold them and these are conceptual statements but of course they're not just that and they're certainly not only that and they're of course subject to enormous internal pressure and contestation when they're being drafted let alone when they're being enacted and um, so so what have you found some of the main historical difficulties to be in, in dealing with precisely with this genre yeah, so there, um, I think there are a couple of aspects to this or a couple of challenges I find in approaching a document like the Universal Declaration. Um, and one of them has to do with, with the gap between um, what we take as straightforwardly philosophical texts that are written self-consciously as philosophical texts, often by academics, um, and what can be seen as sort of activist or political texts. Um, and I, I'm generally committed to the idea that that distinction falls apart pretty quickly when you start to push at it, right? That a lot of, there are a lot of historical documents like the UN Declaration that, that can be read for philosophical content that are often actually are written pretty self-consciously philosophically, um, but that are not academic texts necessarily. Um, this, the stakes of this are a bit higher when you're not looking at, at sort of diplomatic history, but at, um, at history of political thought more generally and the question of what counts as part of part of that history. Um, so I think the inclusion of people who are more often regarded as political actors, as political thinkers, um, is, some, is an important push um, and one that helps us expand beyond, um, beyond people in more privileged academic positions, the question of who, who counts as a political thinker. At the same, and by the same token, I think it's interesting often to read, and this is part of the push of, of contextualism more generally, to think about academic writers as themselves part of, at least working within particular political moments, often having political projects of their own. Um, so that, that means that sort of approaching texts both as having philosophical, independent philosophical content and as doing political work so not dismissing things as simply instrumental, simply political work, but attending to the kind of work they do, whether those are academic texts or not. Um, but at the same time, it would be silly to pretend that there's no difference between those categories of documents and the sort of conditions of their production, the audiences they're written for, um, do make a difference um, in the way we read them. Um, right. So there's a, there's a problem of sort of how we read texts as both political works and as intellectual works at the same time. Um, in thinking about a document like the Universal Declaration, there's a different set of um, problems as well about how we read a document that's really written by committee um, and that it evolves through a series of negotiations, a series of amendments, um, series of drafts. Um, and that, that brings in some sort of traditional tools of diplomatic history of looking back through the correspondence between the authors and thinking about them, but also gets into um, debates about the history of international law and the sort of politics of, of empire and law um, is relevant for me here too. Um, so there, there are sort of two pushes, I think, in some of the recent historiography on, on international law in this period. There's both an effort to understand the way that um, powerful actors affiliated with, um, with countries that had colonial holdings um, or with the US and sort of this bracketing the question of whether we think of the US as an empire in this moment. Um, and the sort of to look at the ways that they encoded imperial politics into, um, into their work and writing, um, be those intellectual authors or, um, or 
academic authors or more political actors. Um, there's also a push to sort of emphasize the contributions of, of actors from the global south in, um, in international law. Um, so in focusing on, on Roosevelt and Kassai, I'm not, I'm not trying to deny that there was influence from other, from other thinkers on this. Um, and at the same time, I do think it's important not to downplay this is what I was, as I was saying before, the sort of the power of, of the U.S. and France, um, particularly the U.S. in this moment. Um, Great. Yeah, that's, so, that's one of the things I mean when I say that the kind of intellectual history you do is really hard because you have all these competing things to think about simultaneously. <laughs> I was wondering if we, if we could go back um, to, to what we parked a, a minute ago, which is this question of the connection between human rights and civil rights, in particular in the context yeah. of, of America. You know, this We're talking about 1948 when, when the, uh, uh, the Universal Declaration is made, and of course the civil rights movement doesn't manage to succeed in, in the combination of the Civil Rights Act until the mid-1960s. And so of course uh, there, there was a very strong charge, I believe in particular from the Soviets, that the Americans were just straight up hypocrites in this area. That how could they on the one hand declare uh, that the, the, the were universal human rights? And if you look at their own history of slavery and of Jim Crow, which of course was still the reality um, in, of segregation in the South. Um, so how did that play out? And what, what was some of the tension uh, that needed to be resolved there? So there's, there's been a growing historiography on what's often referred to as sort of Cold War civil rights. And on that um, transition, precisely as you outlined, between, um, between a movement in the U.S. that was demanding what we'd now think of as civil rights, what, um, in what, what's encoded in part in the Civil Rights Act, um, but often using the terms of human rights and civil rights somewhat interchangeably. Um, and as part of that, that was connecting struggles of African-Americans in the US with struggles of, of colonial subjects worldwide and sort of broader efforts against, against colonial control. Um, and that internationalist politics is is really present um, in the in the 40s, um, so that it comes up a fair amount at the um, at the San Francisco conference on the UN Charter. Um, but but I think the the moment one moment that's particularly present for me for this is is um, W. E. B. Du Bois's um, appeal to the world petition. So he's that he edits this for the NAACP and submits it to the drafting committee of the Universal Declaration. Um, it has portions by other scholars within it. Um, but that's making a claim about, um, about the rights of African Americans in the US as human rights um, and as, uh, as, uh, as objects of international concern in themselves. Um, and it's pointing to a kind of American hypocrisy. Um, um, the way that hypocrisy gets used is a sort of complicated thing that I have other thoughts about too, but it's, um, that's, that petition is, um, is picked up by the Soviets and there's a, uh, as well and used to sort of criticize the US, um, though is the standard story on it, right, is that it's, it's somewhat quashed in part by Eleanor Roosevelt, even though she's has just been on the board of the NAACP, that she, she, doesn't, um, she doesn't support it being brought forward. I think she does a little more to support it than, that's, than is often attributed to her, but... Um, but she doesn't ultimately support the right for a petition to come forward, in part because of this concern about vulnerability to accusations of hypocrisy in a Cold War context. Um, so in the sort of broader story, um, there's, a, there's a lot sort of up for grabs still in the 40s. Um, and the, 
as a lot of, of, of historians have traced going in through the 50s and 60s, the effort by African-American activists to, to make demands in terms of human rights um, gets widely suppressed and sort of channeled into a language of civil rights instead. Um, and that happens in multiple ways. And it's, that's somewhat about the sort of punishment of activists like Du Bois who continue using the language of human rights, um, then part through sort of red baiting claims. Um, and, and some of it's also about sort of strategic decisions to emphasize civil rights in order to win um, to win gains politically in the US. Um, and it converges with a separate set of politics around isolationism in, um, in, in America. Um, but the story that, that comes out of that, I think is very much consistent. Part of what I'm, I'm tracing and looking at the Universal Declaration is the way that a narrative of progress toward rights on, on rights at home, treating those as internal domestic issues rather than as objects of, of international dispute um, is sort of built into the declaration in part by the US delegation. So the decision to split the, the, right, the Universal Declaration from the rights covenants um, is something that's largely attri attributable to the US um, and is part of a, an effort to cast rights as something that, are, that we strive toward, um, that we're sort of trying to constantly make progress on and to treat that progress as um, something that primarily happens within the container of the nation state. Um, and that's, that's, that's part of what sort of domesticates that language of human rights into a language of civil rights going into the 60s. So that leads us quite nicely to a wider question that I know you're interested in, which is the extent to which human rights discourse and human rights declarations are in fact much more closely bound up with legacies of imperialism and of colonialism um, than often might be believed. There's a sort of... Uh, I say naive, not not in a sort of insulting way, but in a lack of inform informedness way, sort of sense which you might think, well, you know, by declaring the universal rights of all people, surely that's an anti-imperialist um, uh, impulse. That's a sort of egalitarian impulse. But as your work and the work of others have shown, actually it's much more complicated than that. That there's a legacy here of intertwinement between uh, human rights and and imperialism. So, so could you explain to, to to those of us who who might be surprised by that um, why why it was indeed the case? There's a fairly standard story about the history of human rights that begins from Enlightenment declarations sees those um, declarations as initially unfulfilled and tracks their gradual expansion. Um, and greater fulfillment um, in part through claim making on behalf of colonial subjects um, and in the US context of black Americans for inclusion within that promise. Um, and part of what goes with that story is a notion of, of rights as a sort of asp as aspirational, a sort of progress narrative of gradual fulfillment of initial ideals. There's also an implicit notion I think of of um, hypocrisy as a problem of a gap between stated ideals and political practices and that the history of human rights becomes a story about bringing practices in line with stated ideals. Um, part of what I'm interested in is the way that that narrative itself is used by historical actors to suppress claims for faster fulfillment and to suppress critiques of just how thoroughgoing um, imperial or uh, white power control is. Um, so that, that I think when you look back at 
at a sort of history of rights claim making, there is a lot of use of the language of those earlier declarations, but they're not simply about claims for inclusion within those categories. And a lot of the claims about sort of gradual inclusion or the gradual rolling out of a promise are coming instead from people who are trying to, um, in, well, in Kassan's case, to suppress claims for, um, for anti-colonial independence, um, or we can debate what Roosevelt was really up to, but who are, um, in this context, at least suppressing claims like Du Bois's um, for immediate action on human rights in the US um, and international attention to them. Um, so presumably here again, the, the importance of whether you think rights have to be realized through national structures and through states is, is very important. And insofar as the states who are promising to uh, enact these kinds of rights may also themselves be holding colonies or have imperial territories, then presumably in that sense, there's no straightforward way in which simply making declarations of human rights or even drawing upon past declarations of human rights is going to translate into um, some, some obviously anti-imperialist or anti-colonialist form of politics. Is, is, that, is that the idea here? Yes, I think that's right. Um, though it becomes, <laughs> sorry, let me start that again. Uh, Yes, I think this is part of when you begin to see that the strict line between self-determination and human rights and the notion of, of nations as sort of containers for rights starts to, to fall apart. Um, so there's a vision um, of rights as sort of gradually expanded, gradually unrolling, um, people increasingly included in them. In, in the French context, that raises problems about federation um, and sort of future of the empire um, and whether it'll be whether it's possible to maintain um, this is a problem for Kassan for to maintain French colonial control while also expanding rights um, and on just on how on how just how equal the terms of those rights will be is is being actively contested um, and it's part of what raises the problem of of black nationalism or black separatism in the U.S. too the question of whether um, in some ways an animating question for African-American political thought of whether justice within the U.S. is ever possible um, or whether separation in some form is necessary. Um, and that problem, I think, gets at the question of, of how rights and ideas of rights and self-determination go together from, um, from their supposed beginnings, um, that, that ideas of, um, of individual rights um, rest on notions of political community and what it means to be part of a, a political community on equal terms in a way that means increasing claims for inclusion are, are calling into question the boundaries of communities and what their founding, supposed founding moments really are. Um, that's part of why I like to think about sort of later rights claims, not as claims for inclusion in an existing polity on more equal terms, um, but something where the question of inclusion is at issue and the question of the possibility of equality is at issue, but that are fundamentally trying to refound those communities and remake those found those initial promises. Um, right, so, so I suppose that, that takes us full circle then uh, uh, to, to where we started. So is the idea here that through disavowing certain aspects of how declarations of rights have been made in the past, you can actually take the resources that have been used, say, for imperialist purposes, and then turn them against the imperialist purposes by disavowing certain aspects of the legacy and affirming others in the face of it. Is that the idea here, that there's still an implicit promise within um, the, the genre of taking it in a different direction, so not being locked in to what it's been used in the past? 
Yeah, and I think so. There's there's a there's a sense in which this is a moment of reusing something from the past, um, and in order in order to to recast it, um, I think what's what I find interesting is that that problem of whether you understand that as a kind of repetition or a kind of um, truncation and then inclusion, um, or as something that that that's deeply critical of what of the earlier version and that's more original in what it's doing rather than just repeating it um, is at stake for the actors themselves. Um, so that um, in, in the Algerian context, I focus in particular on, on the work of Farhad Abbas, who's um, one of the leaders of the provisional government um, and the sort of Algerian revolutionary movement. And for him, that question of whether this is a repetition of 1789 or whether it's the birth of something new and what it means to sort of have something new begin um, in the wake of something that came before and that repeats aspects of it too um, is, a, is a, a struggle and a salient question for him. It's not something that I think has a clear answer, but that it's itself has political stakes in its moment. Um, on a slightly more radical bent, I also um, in the book look at, at Malcolm X's use of the um, 1776 um, and the American Declaration and the way that he, he sort of thematizes this dilemma of whether inclusion is possible um, in describing those founding moments as lies, those founding promises as lies um, and as hypocritical ones. Um, and I think that that sort of works to force a dilemma about the possibility of inclusion or the need for radical separatism and refounding. Um, and I, he's often read as, as clearly on the separatist side. I take him more to be sort of calling the question and um, trying to trying to force a dilemma. Um, well, thanks, Emma. Uh, so much to think about, and again, just so many complications. But um, I look forward to to the book being published. Um, it's not it's not out yet, right? That's, it's still no, still no, no, no. no. <laughs> well, we look we look forward to it, so we can we can get 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 uh, get deeper into these complexities in due course. But thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.